0: Isaiah 59, as we're continuing in this Advent series, aimed at peaking our anticipation for the coming of Christ and His salvation. Now, so far we've seen God launch this promise of redemption in Genesis 3, right on the the heels of mankind's fall into sin. Then we saw God raise Israel's expectations for eternal rest and security in His presence under the reign of an offspring of David since that great promise that God made to David, things have not gone well in Israel. Sin, idolatry, and rejection of the Lord have plagued David's descendants. The kingdom was split in two with, within a couple of generations. And despite some godly kings in Judah, by the time Isaiah was prophesying 300 years down the road, Assyria was threatening, Babylon was on the rise, and Isaiah announced judgment and exile right around the corner. But even in the face of all this, hope was not lost, because Isaiah promised that a Redeemer would still come for his people and even for the nations. In fact, this promise of salvation is so omnipresent throughout Isaiah, I could have chosen half the chapters in the book for a series in Advent. But this morning I've chosen a chapter we don't consider as often. And so I hope you'll have your Bibles open and follow along with me as we read Isaiah chapter 59. Would you follow as we read God's word together? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and their deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and turning away, or turning from the heart, lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. God, how we thank you for this precious promise. Would you... Give us understanding from your word and cause us to treasure Christ and look forward to his coming all the more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are constantly trying to diagnose problems in life. For instance, last weekend I was trying to diagnose the problem with the disposal under my sink. Now, the chief challenge with my diagnostic efforts is that I have no idea how these things work. So in this case, I cleared a little metal icing tip that had fallen in the disposal and jammed it. But then I went to turn it on and it still didn't work and didn't even make a sound. And so my conclusion was the jam must have fried the motor. I must need a new one. I've got to go and install something new. Who knew that there's a circuit that trips in a jam and all I had to do was push a little red button underneath and I could be the hero of the day. Of course, I didn't know this. Uh, But even when we do understand what we're working on, sometimes we put all of our focus on the complicated possibilities, and we ignore the obvious problem staring us right in the face. For instance, I uh, saw a survey of customer service representatives this week who report that by far the most common issue when people call them about a problem with their appliance is, quote, failure to plug in appliance, Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of which of you have made that call. Apparently, statistically, it's likely someone here did. But spiritually, Israel finds itself in the same place here in Isaiah. See, in Isaiah chapter 58, Israel complained of a problem. They were fasting before the Lord. They were calling upon God, but God wasn't answering. And so the questions start to come as Israel tries to diagnose the problem and they wonder, is God not able to help us this time? Is God distracted by other things and not listening to us right now? And so Isaiah, the covenant expert sent by God to diagnose the problem, speaks in Isaiah 59 to give the diagnosis. And you see it right in verse 1 that we read today. No, the Lord's hand is not shortened. That it cannot save. No, the Lord's ear is not dull that he does not hear. Rather, it is your iniquities or your sins that have made a separation between you and your God so that your sins have hidden his face from you. Now, as Isaiah expounds on this diagnosis, his main point is this Sin has left Israel. And all mankind, for that matter, under judgment without any man to save. But there is hope because of God's character and God's covenant promise. Sin has left Israel and all mankind under judgment without anyone to save. But there is hope because of God's character and God's promise. That's the point we'll see as we work our way through this chapter. I want us to begin by looking at verses 2 through 8 where Isaiah describes the reality of sin that is separating man from God. It was that pithy theologian from a century ago, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote that original sin, the fact that all mankind is born sinful, is the one scientifically verifiable doctrine of Christianity. All one has to do is look around you in the streets and you see it. While Isaiah here invites Israel to look around them in the streets and consider the facts. Their hands are defiled with blood, their fingers with iniquity, their lips have spoken lies, their tongues mutter wickedness. They undermine justice and use the law dishonestly. Verses 4 through 6 are some of my favorite verses here. They use some of the most vivid imagery in the entire book of Isaiah. Isaiah takes pictures of blessing and productivity and turn them on their head to show a people busy producing more sin. Any parent or grandparent knows the miracle of new birth. But instead of giving birth to offspring who will multiply and fill the earth and bring about joy and blessing, Israel is working together to conceive mischief and give birth to more sin. Instead of laying eggs, a a sign of new life, eggs that would hatch, new chicks waddling around who will then bear more eggs that could be food for mankind. In Israel, they're hatching adder's eggs which bring about serpents. And if one tries to scramble up one of those eggs for your omelet, they're poisonous and they produce death. Or how about the craft of weaving beautiful cloth for clothes, clothes that would adorn one another and cover them and keep them warm. Well, in Israel, they're weaving spider's webs, which cannot clothe or cover, but only entrap. is a great image you know what it's like to walk into a spider's web right you've got those strands those sticky strands that stick to you and trap you and 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 annoy you and you can't get out of well imagine someone here coming and giving you a new shirt woven from spider's webs it's not going to cover you it's not going to keep you warm it's only going to stick you annoy you hurt you and entrap you rather than bring blessing that's the image of verses four through six here Verses 7 and 8 add that their feet run to evil, their thoughts are of iniquity, desolation, destruction, and shedding of innocent blood abound, so that they do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their paths. This is the reality of sin in Israel. Now, we might be tempted to write ourselves out of this picture. Surely, swift running to evil and, and shedding innocent blood isn't me. But if that's where our minds go, let's acknowledge two things right up front. First, this is an accurate picture of mankind, and we know that. A quick review of human history confirms it. A quick flyover of the world from Venezuela to China to Iran to Nigeria confirms it. A quick survey of the United States from homes of violence that any social worker can tell you about to money and power. That are used to protect institutions and the famous and squash the appeals of the vulnerable. To the sanitized hospital room in the halls of lawmakers actively seeking to kill fully formed and viable babies. This is a picture of humanity. But second, not only is this an accurate picture of humanity, but we ourselves have to acknowledge that we have contributed to this picture. See, murder isn't the only accusation here. And which of us has not spoken a lie with our lips or dwelt on thoughts of iniquity and bitterness, anger and jealousy? Which of us has not given annoyance and hurt rather than blessing to others? In fact, if you remember Paul in Romans chapter 3, after talking about sin in Israel and sin in the Gentiles, says sin is true of all of us. There is no one who is righteous, but all are sinful. And and in Romans 3, he quotes a number of passages from the Old Testament to prove that all mankind is sinful. And Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 8, are one of the verses that he quotes to prove the sinfulness of all mankind. As Paul reminds believers in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, apart from Christ, every one of us, Jew and Gentile, fit this description. Dead in sin, carrying out the desires of our flesh and mind with a track record of doing life our way rather than God's so that we are all children of wrath. And so as a result, Israel... And all mankind find themselves described in verses 2 through 8 and so separated from God with his face turned from them. That is the reality of sin and the diagnosis for us all apart from Christ. Well, then in verses 9 through 15, Isaiah goes on to describe the consequences of sin. Therefore, Isaiah writes, Because of all this sin which has separated us from God, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but we find darkness. We grope about like the blind, stumbling even at noon. We hope for salvation and justice, but there is none. Now, sometimes this description very, rings very true to our hearts caught in the web of of sin, we feel that our lives are not giving us meaning or satisfaction. We know the effort to find some meaning and satisfaction in life that, and all of our efforts continue to leave us casting about for some meaning. Sometimes we do know the anxiety and, and despair of life, but we blame other people for our plight rather than our own sin. Other times, of course, we don't feel this way at all. Sometimes we feel that setting aside God's rules to do what I want to do or feel I need right now feels empowering. Sometimes we feel that joining the culture and doing the things they do feels freeing. Sometimes we feel that the pleasures of sin override the naggings of our conscience. Those are the way we feel in different times. But regardless of what we feel, the word of the Lord offers us the correct and trustworthy diagnosis that we all and denying the Lord and turning back from following Him find ourselves in dead ends emptiness stumbling all because of the separation between us and God and the turning of His face away because of our iniquities that's the diagnosis and the reality of sin and the consequences of it and if you just step back for a minute and consider the weight of verses 1 through 15 Israel And according to Paul, all mankind find this description true of turning from following him and abounding in sin. And in the face of this indictment of us, we are forced to reckon with Isaiah's conclusions. That apart from Christ, our sin has separated us from God. That our sins actively testify against us despite our protestations and defenses. And that salvation is far from us. It's hard to imagine a more dire indictment of our situation than these verses. But it's just at this point, at this darkest point, having seen the reality of sin and its consequences, that Isaiah turns and declares that there is hope. It starts in verse 15 where we learn that the Lord saw the situation. Now, this isn't surprising. Scripture tells us many times that God looks down and sees what is happening on earth And we learn that when the Lord looks down, the situation displeased him. The the Hebrew literally says it was evil in his sight that there was no justice. And this, this too should not be surprising. We would expect a holy and righteous God to consider it an evil thing that sin abounds unopposed and unpunished. But the surprise then comes in verse 16. Because God's response when he sees this and considers it an evil in his sight is not to come down in wrath. It's to look around for a man who could intercede, to look around for a man who could stand in the breach that sin has made between God and man. But when the Lord looks around for such a man, he finds nobody. The ESV says that God wondered at this, but it would really be better to translate it, that he was astonished at this or horrified at this, that there was no man to intervene. And that is the hopelessness of the situation on its own merits. There was no one who could step up to address the situation of the separation between God and man because of sin. But just when it seems that there is no hope, We come to the second half of verse 16. And there the Lord says that he himself will act. When the Lord saw that there was no one to intercede, we read, then his own arm brought for him the salvation that he desired. And his own righteousness. What is God's righteousness here? It's his character, his commitment to be true to who he is and what he has promised. That righteousness upheld him. See, God had made a promise to Adam and Eve. God had made a covenant with Abraham. God had made a covenant promise to David that he would bring about blessing through their descendants and establish them firmly in the land under the security of an offspring of David. And God's righteousness to fulfill his word upholds him in this situation and the strength of his own arm acts to bring salvation for his people. There's a beautiful verse in Second Kings 14. It's maybe not often that we have verses from Second Kings running through our minds, but Second Kings chapter 14, verses 26 to 27. Second Kings has just related the wickedness of the kings of Israel, but then we read, "The Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, there was none to help Israel." But, 2 Kings reads, the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. It's the same sentiment here in Isaiah. Just when Israel was separated from God in sin and there was nobody to help, because of the Lord's righteousness and his strength, the Lord himself acts to bring salvation and fulfill his word. So what would God do? How does he do this? Well, verse 17 tells us that he will arm himself like a warrior. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance, and a cloak of zeal. Now, I realize that no less than the great hymn writer Charles Wesley told us to think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But when I read this verse, I can't think of can't help but think of Jesus' birth as the moment that God in his burning passion for his promises and his people strapped on his armor and stepped into the morass of human sin with the strength of his own arm to bring the salvation that he desired. And Isaiah tells us that when God determines to act, three things will happen. In verse 18, we find out that he will repay his enemies for their sin. God's salvation, see, is not all roses and pixie dust and happily ever afters. He was displeased that there was no justice. And when he acts, he brings wrath against wickedness. It will be wrath against all sin. Yes, against those in Israel who had rejected him in sin, but also those in every nation. It says even to the coastlands, he will bring repayment for sin. And what? What should a God of justice do in the face of such unrepentant and oppressive evil? For all who wonder how God could sit back while evil exists on earth. For the people who cry, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the sin against us? Verse 18 reminds us that the justice of his character will be vindicated and he will repay sins when he comes on that last day. So there will be just judgment. The second thing we find out in verse 19 is that in God's mercy, some from across the world, from west to the rising sun in the east, will respond to the Lord by fearing His name and His glory. The fear of the Lord here, of course, is not some mild acknowledgement that God exists. No, the fear of the Lord is a recognition of who God is. And it is a submission to the Lord, an honoring the Lord, a worship of the lord that he deserves that's what saving faith looks like submission honor and worship and the recognition of who god is now the second part of verse 19 is the most ambiguous line of hebrew in the passage and your bibles probably have a variety of translations of it it could talk about the wind of the lord or that could be talking about the spirit of the lord It could be that the Lord will come rushing like a river, or it could be the Lord rising up against enemies that rush like a river. We're not exactly sure. But whichever the translation is, everyone agrees on the point. And the point is that God will act in power on behalf of his people, and the display of his power and glory will lead many from west to east to submit to the Lord in fear of his name and his glory." So there's going to be just judgment. There's going to be many who will respond in the fear of the Lord. But then verse 20 tells us the third thing that the Lord will do. A Redeemer will come to Zion. And those in Israel who turn from their sin will be saved. Now let's not forget what a Redeemer is. Let's not forget our definitions of words here. A Redeemer is someone who pays a cost to set someone else free. And the Lord says that when he acts, a redeemer will come. Though there was no man to intercede, when God acts, a redeemer will pay the price so that all in Israel who turn from their sin will be saved. Now, this is a tremendous promise. But perhaps you could imagine someone in Israel, they're surrounded by wicked priests and lying prophets and idolatrous kings and enemies rising against them and sin abounding and no hope in sight. And they might hear Isaiah's prophecy and say, boy, that doesn't really look possible right now. How do I know that's true? Can I really trust what God has said? And if you could imagine that person asking that question, then we know why the Lord has given us verse 21, which declares the reason why we can be confident that this promise will come true. As for me, the Lord says in verse 21, this is my covenant with them with those in Israel who will see the coming of their Redeemer. And immediately when God declares that his covenant is with them, it reminds us again that he's made that covenant promise to Adam and Eve, a covenant promise to Abraham, a covenant promise to David. And if God's righteousness and faithfulness and truth are to be upheld, his word cannot be broken. He must and will fulfill every promise that he has made to his people. And how does the Lord summarize his covenant here? That my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or your offspring or your offspring's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, when this redeemer comes to Zion, their repentance is not going to be a blip on the radar. It's not going to be temporary. It is going to be eternal and secure that will last forevermore. And this is a promise of eternal, unbreakable assurance thanks to the work of God's arm through the Redeemer He will send and His Spirit who will remain on His people. And because this is God's covenant with them, we know that it will be fulfilled because of His character and His promises. Now this is the hope that Isaiah has given his people, but I want to end before we conclude with three observations this morning. First observation is this. Note that when God acts, he brings both judgment and salvation. His character demands that he bring both. And again, when you think about Christmas, I don't want you to just think of the sweet smiling baby who will let us all into heaven. This is a God of righteousness strapping on his armor to act because there was no justice. So which applies to you? Judgment or salvation. The stakes are too high for you to make a quick assumption. But in His mercy, God has told us ahead of time what is at stake. And this passage tells us that turning from sin to the fear of the Lord, to submitting to Him in honor of His name and His glory, is the decisive test to determine where you stand. John 3.36 put this same thing slightly differently when it wrote, "'Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.'" Brothers and sisters, there is a warning here. So do we know our sin? Do you recognize your need for a Savior? And have you turned from sin and trusted in this Redeemer who paid the price— for our sins? That's the first question everyone here must consider this morning. The second thing I want us to consider is our response to God's decision to act on our behalf. I wonder if you've ever had someone do something nice for you. Maybe it was something that was way more than you would have expected them to do. Or something that was uh, maybe not huge, but you just didn't see it coming. Maybe, maybe someone uh, stops and brings you a, a latte from Starbucks. You didn't ask for it. You didn't know it was coming, but they were stopping. They knew you liked it. And that's a significant investment these days, to bring a, a latte from, from Starbucks. And, and so maybe you've, you've received that. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a Christmas gift that they give you that's way bigger than anything you would have expected. And and when someone does something like that, how do we respond? We we say, you didn't have to do that. And it's it's an expression of gratitude and thanks, but also a recognition that there was no obligation. This was an act of initiative, of kind thoughtfulness, of self-sacrifice that went above and beyond expectations. Here in Isaiah 59, we have the ultimate, you didn't have to do that situation. God quite literally had no obligation to us who had turned our backs from following him and busied our thoughts and our fingers and our lips with sin but he did it. He did it for the sake of his covenant. He did it for the sake of his name and his people and his glory. He saved Israel and he extended his salvation to many across the world and even to us. So may this passage astound us again. And lead us to recognize that the Lord has acted without any obligation in the greatest gift he could. And may we give him thanks and praise. Finally, one more observation. So when Jesus came the first time to Zion, when he came to Bethlehem in the stable, when he came to Jerusalem to die and to rise for the forgiveness of all who turned from transgression to trust in him, he began To fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. But he hasn't finished fulfilling it. You see, you remember Paul. Paul wrote the book of Romans. And Paul wrote the book of Romans several decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, in that decisive moment when he accomplished salvation. But when Paul wrote the book of Romans. In chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, Paul quotes this chapter, Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, and he says it hasn't happened yet. He says that in the future, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, a day is going to come when the Redeemer will come to Zion and all those in Israel, all Israel who turn from sin will be saved. And so, even while we look back at what Christ has done for us, we look ahead to the final fulfillment of the redemption that he has promised. In other words, we haven't even seen the best of Christmas yet. There's a day coming when he's going to fulfill all his promises to Israel and welcome all his people from the west to the rising of the sun and the east into his eternal kingdom. And that is going to be the day of full rejoicing. We're all going to be singing joy to the world. The Lord has come in a whole new way then. And so this Christmas season, as we look back to what Christ has done, may our gaze also be forward with great anticipation for the day when the work of God's arm and the zeal of his salvation will be accomplished and we will be with him forever. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this Chapter in Isaiah's prophecy. This chapter that gives us the accurate diagnosis of our sin, a diagnosis that is more dire than we dare to admit. But it is true, and we know it. And yet, even in the face of such sin, Father, you have acted by the strength of your own arm, because of your own righteous character. You have acted to bring salvation for your people. So, Father, this morning I pray that our eyes would be fixed on such a Savior. Father, I pray that none here would ignore the fact that this salvation also comes with judgment. How I pray that each would run to this Savior, that we would fear the name and the glory of the Lord. And how I pray that we would look forward, even in the face of the brokenness and the sin and the suffering of this world, to that day when the Redeemer will come again and we will be with you forever. Father, I thank you for these things and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.